0: Hey everyone, welcome to the Amateur Gourmet Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Roberts, the Amateur Gourmet, and today we have a fantastic episode for you. In fact, I might even venture to say this is the best episode I've ever created of this podcast. Um, We have a Julia Child-themed episode with two extraordinary guests. We have the creator of the show Julia on HBO Max, which I just literally devoured in a couple of days. It's my new favorite show on TV. Um, If you know Julia Child, as a fan of her work, Or her TV show, you need to watch this show And I get to ask Daniel Goldfarb, the creator of it, all about it But first, I invited on Dory Greenspan Who is one of my all-time favorite cookbook authors And just personalities She wrote Baking with Dory, Everyday Dory, Baking Shemois And she's also the author of the XOXO Dory newsletter And she actually knew Julia Child in real life Because they worked together on the Baking with Julia cookbook So to start off this episode I thought I would ask Dorian to talk all about her experiences working with Julia. So here we go. Here's my talk with Dory Greenspan about Julia Child. All right. Well, we are here now with Dory Greenspan, who's one of my favorite people in the food world. And I'm so lucky that she agreed to talk to me today. Hi, Dory. How are you?
1: I'm the lucky one. Hi, Adam. (laughs) Hi.
0: Well, I wanted to talk to you, A, because I've wanted to talk to you forever. And I hope you'll come back and let me talk to you again about your books and your work. But today uh, we're doing a Julia Child themed episode. Right. And you, (laughs) yeah. And you, we're lucky enough to have worked with her, and I'm just curious. With all the attention that's now back on Julia, what's it like for you to have her thrust back in the limelight like this?
1: I'm I, I, I'm so happy. I'm just a little sad because I think she would have gotten such joy out of seeing of, of, of seeing the appreciate. I, I think she knew how much people appreciated her, how much they loved her. But she never took anything for granted. She worked so hard at everything. She she made it look like it was nothing, like it was Mm -hmm. just, you know, she could do it eyes closed, um, that it was effortless. But she worked really, really hard. And I think it would just make her so happy to know that this work lives on and that people still... Appreciate her. People are still learning from her. That would have been really important to her. The people that's are still great. Coming. Yeah.
0: And have, have you been watching the show, Julia?
1: So I've been watching, I only have the last two episodes to watch.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've been watching. And how does it cuz it, when you just said that she worked so hard. I feel like the show does a good job of capturing that because you just see her not just machinating like to get the show on the air but just how how much work she put into each recipe. So does that feel right to you?
1: I was so happy when I saw that that you come to understand how important this work was for her, how seriously she took it. So I worked with Julia in what's so long ago now. We worked together the summer of 1995 on the Baking with Julia PBS series and the book that I wrote. And when the book was written and out in the world, Julia was doing some touring for it and she would call me every night. And the first thing she would say is every recipe worked for her that was the most important thing mm-hmm. and and you see you you can see that in the julia show just how she wanted everything to work right she tested 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 to get things right I, yes, that's an important part, and, and I think the show does a great job of, of showing that.
0: Well, I'm curious for you because I know obviously you're a Francophile who not isn't just a Francophile. You're actually a, a resident, or you a live
1: part-time, or yeah,
0: part-time <laughs> resident. But I'm curious in terms of Julia's love for France and your own love for France and, and I'm not even sure where you grew up, but did that, how much did Julia's um, love for French cooking impact your own love for French cooking?
1: So I grew up in Brooklyn. Okay. I say Brooklyn before it was hip and groovy. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And in fact, I didn't grow up with Julia. So I hear so many people say, oh, you know, she was in the Background, I, you know, we'd come home and my parents would be watching Julia, or people who, you know, would have been of of age to watch Julia. That wasn't me. So when I met Julia, which was in 1991, I had. Mastering the Art of French Cooking, both volumes. Michael had made the baguette recipe, which runs like 17 pages. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I had only cooked a few things from her books. And so I met Julia when my first book came out and we connected over food and came to have wonderful conversations about France afterward.
0: Hmm. But so you, you had your own journey into French cuisine from Brooklyn, but did it, I guess, I guess I'm curious, like, did it mirror Julia's journey in the sense of like, did you go there and eat monnier or however you say that? It's
1: so funny. I, I, I did have that life-changing food experience, but I never thought about the fact that yes, Julia and I had similar experiences. So while hers was the sole mine was a strawberry torque. Hmm. I had it on our very, very first trip to Paris. It was, we were traveling on like, you know, five bucks a day for each of us. And, um, and that strawberry torque kind of broke the budget. And my husband, Michael and I shared it. It was the size. Oh, it was about as long as my thumb and it was a little barquette, so a little boat-shaped tart. And it had three tiny little strawberries on it, teensy tiny, fres de bois. And Michael allowed me to have two of them, <laughs> which is, this is why I love him and love him still. <laughs> but I tasted that and I had kind of, I hadn't thought about it, but a Julia moment in that it, I felt like I was tasting butter for the first time. I was tasting vanilla for the first time and realizing that strawberries had a flavor that I had never had before. So yeah, we did have a similar French food experience.
0: I love that. I, and it I feels like it was part of this like a, a, awakening for Americans in a way to like go to Europe and, and experience the sensuality and just sort of have this breakthrough thing that, that then came back to the country and in both your work and Julia's work showed people how to enjoy stuff like that. So that makes a lot of sense. Um, I'm curious though, in terms of your very first meeting with Julia, and maybe you've told this story, but for people who don't know it, can you talk about the very first time that you met her?
1: I've told this story and I love telling it because I think that it's so Julia and it's also wild, crazy and wonderful. So it's 1991. I had just written my first book, Sweet Times. And through a friend, I was invited. To Boston University, where Julia Child and Jacques Pepin had started a gastronomy program, and I was invited to do a demo from my book um, of a recipe. And there were other people who were making their food, and I was petrified. I was the kid who, like, was afraid to get up in front of people. I didn't, but you have a book; a book is like your baby. You have to take it out into the world. And so I said yes. And I got there and there was Julia and there was Jacques and I had to do my demo in front of them.
0: Oh my God.
1: I've just tell you, you know, I have this like Like <laughs> just, I just looked up and saw Julia's face on the spine of baking with Julia. Yes, Julia, I was really scared <laughs> and so I did the simplest recipe I could. All I had to do was put the ingredients in a food processor and press, it, it was boring, but and press the button and then out came this cake. And when I finished, Julia said, there's a dinner for all of the presenters. And I would like you to sit with me at this dinner. And, you know, she's like six feet, um, five foot four. And she put her arm around me and she said, come, we're going to have dinner together. And we were at, I know that there must have been other people at this table. It was a table for four people. I don't know who they were. I'm just looking at Julia. And at some point she says, well, you know, that that Saturday Night Live, that Dan Aykroyd imitation of me. And I had never seen it. I knew about it. All of America knew about it. So I said, I haven't seen it. She said, I'll show you how it goes. And Julia just lifted herself up. (laughs) And there she was, all six feet of her doing the Dan Aykroyd imitation <laughs> with the chicken in the blood, and it finishes with save the liver. And it was extraordinary. I mean, Julia doing Dan Aykroyd, doing, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, That's how I met Julia.
0: That's so funny. Well, I mean, one thing that the show seems to really capture about her, and I'm curious if you could talk about this, is that as much as people think of her reverently or almost as sort of like this patron saint of gastronomy, I mean, she was sort of body and, you know, like really like sex and really like drinking. And really, you know, there was like this other side to her that maybe people didn't know about. And I'm curious, did you get to experience any of that side of her when you worked with her?
1: She was so much fun. She loved to have fun. She would often, in postcards and things that she would write, she would use the word jolly. And she's mm-hmm. a word we never use any longer, but I always, I, I think I can hear her saying it. She loved a good time and she could kind of mix stuff up to kind of like get things going. We would have at the end of, you know, the end of it, shooting an episode, sometimes we would all stay together in the kitchen and cook. And it was always fun. She was always, she wanted to laugh and she wanted other people to laugh and she wanted them to enjoy food as they were making it. And yeah, she had, she had this kind of little mischievous, mm-hmm. mischievousness, too. <laughs> um, and it was always, so my husband claims that he learned to, to be a better hugger because of Julia. She was incredibly affectionate. She was, she was warm. She was wildly curious about everything. And yeah, she you she she would say unexpected things and you'd look at her and think, she did that on purpose. She never, <laughs> knew she she was gonna get us with that. And she had That's per- funny. she had perfect comedic timing. I mean just Perfect,
0: and in terms of um, I mean, this is also positive and wonderful. I mean, was there was there anything frustrating about working with her, or were there moments where maybe you tried to show her something that you've made and where she disapproved of something I mean was there ever any moment like that? No,
1: it's really funny because while I was in Cambridge, we were working on the show. There was a story, some a reporter was doing a story on Julia, and I don't know why she called me, but she said, everybody has such good things to say about Julia. My editor won't run this story unless I can get a contrary opinion. Who shall I call to say something? (laughs) I can't think of anyone. So no, no, if anything, I'm trying to think I was, so one day she called me, And this was before when we were planning the show and the book. And I'm in in New York and she's in Cambridge and she calls and she says, do you ever use a bread machine? And I said, no. She said, you sound like you're not interested. I said, I'm not. I said, I just, a bread machine doesn't interest me at all. She said, that's the wrong attitude. Mm. She said, you've never used it. You don't know what it can do. I sound so scolding. She wasn't scolding. She, she was a little scolding. She was, <laughs> not scolding me. I think she was disappointed in me. Like where was my mm-hmm. sense of adventure and curiosity? And she said, I'm getting a bread machine this today. And I think you should too. And ah. in the end, we had a bread machine in the show and in the, in the book. So she was very easy.
0: And in terms of like her cooking, like when you would go over, because did you work in her home when you were working with her or was it mostly in a studio?
1: Well, the, the her home was the studio. Oh, I didn't know that. So, yeah, okay. that. so for baking with Julia, she had, you know, you see it in, oh, I mean, just, just seeing the kitchen on the Julia show. She had this beautiful wooden table and that was taken out and a big counter was built. And that's where, so everything happened in her hmm in her kitchen. And we would cook the, the you know, the date, the lunches were all brought in and every caterer, we, they, we went through many caterers. Every caterer was told, whatever you do, don't serve a pasta salad. And I don't know why people didn't listen, but they served a pasta salad and then we got a new caterer.
0: Um, (laughs) What did she have against pasta salad just because she didn't like cold pasta? I don't know.
1: (laughs) I might be exaggerating just a little, but pasta salad is (laughs) on the no list. Yeah. And then we would, we wouldn't often cook at night because everything was, was set up. But a lot of times, you know, the chef from work that afternoon would stay over and we would We'd all, we'd make a big meal for everyone and everybody would just be in the kitchen doing something. And how, how old was,
0: old was she when you were working with her? Was she sort of, I mean, the nineties, right? I mean, was she sort of in her seventies?
1: No, I think she was older. Can we do the math? Can you look up like when she was born? I think, I think she was in her eighties.
0: Julia Child born. Let's see. I could do this. I'm very good. 1912. So yeah. 1912, so she would have been in her 80s, yeah. It be fine, yeah.
1: And she could um, keep up with.
0: Interesting, because I was going to ask you, because I watch a lot of her old shows, and one of the things I think that Julia, the, the show gets right about her from what I've watched on her show, is her breathing. It almost feels like she had labored breathing or... Maybe not labored breathing, but there's something about her. Her like she feels she sounds sometimes winded, but maybe because she's doing so much. But I was curious. Yes,
1: that's yeah, breathy. I would say it was kind of
0: breathy. Yeah,
1: some people say warbly, but as I mean, I'm not speaking as Dr. Dory now. But I don't think it was. I don't think it was medical. I think that was her. That was her voice because she had plenty of energy. I would come into, I worked in, in the Red Room and it was named the Red Room because it had Paul Child paintings, all of which had red in them. And that's Mm. where I had my camera, my screen set up. And, and it was also where Julia got her hair and makeup done. So I'd come in at seven in the morning and Julia would already be there. She'd have the news on the television. She'd have the Boston Globe and the New York Times. And she'd be looking, she was so interested in what was going on in the world. And, you know, we could have been out to dinner until midnight, but she was, you know, Hmm. up there, ready, ready to go.
0: Well, I think it's almost the secret to longevity is to be enthusiastic about whatever you're doing. I mean, she just I mean, even when you talked about the bread machine that she, you know, in her 80s, she was excited about this bread machine. You know, it's like I think to have that enthusiasm keeps you going and keeps you healthy.
1: She was extraordinary in what interested her and and people interested her. So whenever you talk to Julia, she looked directly at you for doing a book signing with her, somebody, you know, the line would be endless and she would take time with each person and she would look at each person. She'd never like look down the line to see what was happening or look over your shoulder to see if there was some important person. Mm-hmm. There. She was interested in you. And I've never heard an interview with Julia where she didn't ask the interviewer a question with genuine interest.
0: I love that. And that's such a great quality. Well, as a final question, is there a dish that you still mostly associate with her, like when when you cook it or when you eat it?
1: (laughs) Tuna salad. (laughs) Okay. So Julia's working lunch, and it was the first meal that I had at her house when we first came up to start talking about the project, was a tuna salad sandwich this is what she made. If, if you know, it was lunchtime, you're working. And well, she didn't make it. She always, she of course she could make it, but she always got everyone involved. So that first day she turned to me and said, "Dory, I, I I don't don't, I'm the only person in the world who doesn't do a Julia accent. And at <laughs> I just point a little side story for a sec. I was, Yes, sure. I was once at a conference with Julia, I think it was in, IACP conference, International Association of Culinary Professionals. And Julia and I are sitting side by side and someone's up on the podium. I can't remember whom. And they they start talking like Julia. And Julia turned to me and said, I don't sound like that, do I? <laughs> and you know, that split second moment. I wanted to say, Julia. No, because I knew that. But I said, yeah, actually, you do. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, how did she handle that?
1: <laughs> I'm sure this wasn't the first time. And I'm not even mm. sure that she didn't ask me just to put me on.
0: <laughs> just,
1: to be, just to be her adorable self. <laughs> um, but funny. so, you know, she we're making, she said, Dora, you do the celery. And of course, I wanted celery to be perfect because it was for Julia. She had the whole thing done and I'm still like making little celery squares, but um, yeah, she'd have a tuna sandwich on a English muffin or on bread. And so every time I make tuna sandwich, I think about my first, my first meal with Julia. Not the tuna, not the strawberry tart, but just a tuna salad sandwich.
0: <laughs> and is there anything specific about what go, went in the tuna for Julia? That was just mayo and salt, pepper, and it, all that stuff.
1: And onions. She liked onions, but it's um, just the idea that that was our first meal, and that was also, you know, so Julia she could take pleasure in beautifully complex, sophisticated meals. And, you know, she loved an In-N-Out burger and
2: she mm-hmm.
1: liked a tuna salad sandwich. And, you know, that's I, I, she just she loved food. She loved the people who made food and she loved sharing it.
0: Well, Dory, this was such a delight. I'm so glad that I asked you to talk about Julia. And I hope you'll come back and let me ask you all about yourself and Brooklyn and <laughs> baking and France. I feel like we could talk for hours.
1: Thank you. I'm always happy to talk to you.
0: (laughs) Okay. Well, thanks, Dory. Have a great rest of your day. (laughs) Isn't Dory Greenspan the coolest? I'm obsessed with her. And if you're obsessed like I'm obsessed, be sure to subscribe to her newsletter, XOXO Dory, which you can find just by Googling it. I get it every week in my inbox and it always brings a smile to my face. And now for our main event, we are going to talk to the creator of the TV show, Julia Daniel Goldfarb. I first became aware of Daniel when I was a student in NYU's Graduate School for Dramatic Writing. I actually studied playwriting there, and I never got to take a class with Daniel, but he was already a superstar there. Uh, Since then, he's gone on to write for Mrs. Maisel. He wrote the Martin short show, Fame Becomes Me, which I saw on Broadway and absolutely loved. And now he's got the biggest feather in his cap, which is Julia, which just got a second season. When you hear us talk, it hadn't happened yet, but since we recorded this interview it got announced that there's going to be a second season so without further ado here is my talk with daniel goldfarb all right well daniel thank you so much for uh coming on my podcast i've been binging julia and i absolutely love it so first of all
2: congratulations on it are you enjoying the success oh yes it's been it's been (laughs) thrilling really you know it's been a long it was like a four-year journey uh, we had lots of hiccups along the way, so to finally yeah. share it with people, and the response has been so great. It's been really, very gratifying. So thank you.
0: Oh yeah, I mean, for me, it's funny because I've been writing about food for twenty years, and when I first heard, without even seeing anything about it, that there was going to be a Julia show, I was like, "Oh, I wonder what that's going to be like." And I didn't expect to love it as much as I do, just because I thought I knew the story, but it's it's so much like. There's so much nuance to it, and and just the performances are so lovely. It just the whole the whole thing just feels lovely. It's just like a delight to watch. All right, I'm just like freezing no. you to death. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I mean, but there's so much craft that goes into it, and and I we have a mutual friend James who maybe told you that um, I went to the dramatic writing program where you teach. But then where I, I also a food went route. as
2: a student. I was a student.
0: And you he went, went as a student. You know, James was in our, my class, and the fact that he's a teacher there now is like. Mind blowing, but anyway, like talking to you is like going to like scratch two issues for me because one, I'm so curious about the food, but I'm also curious about the structure and the and the creation of the show and how you came up with it. So maybe we can start with just the initial idea for it and
2: and how you came up with that. So you know, it it wasn't my idea. Uh, Oh, there's a woman named Kimberly Carver who's a manager at Three Arts, and she is friends with Todd Shulkin who runs the Julia Child Foundation. And they had lunch and they cooked up the idea of doing a show about Mm -hmm. Julia. And they were meeting, they were reading and then meeting with writers. And I was working on The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Uh Uh-huh. So, which I, I feel like that pedigree kind of got me even in the running to be considered. And I had written a pilot for Showtime called Genesis about like a mature marriage, very much about a marriage. And so my manager had submitted genesis and had said that i'm a big foodie and the first you know the the play i wrote in grad school was like a fictional play about ruth reichel and john simon going (laughs) on a date and the first pilot i ever (laughs) sold was about like a fictional version of ruth reichel a restaurant critic who reviews restaurants in disguise i've been wanting to do something oh my gosh my whole career and i had coffee with kimberly we did like every January, we would do a Maisel field trip because my bosses, Amy and Dan, had award shows every weekend. So instead of them flying back and forth, they just brought the whole writer's room to LA for three weeks every year. Nice. And I was there and I, uh, I said, this is how I see it. And this is my take on it. And uh, thank goodness, she she decided to go with <laughs> me. So that's how I got the job. Yeah. And then... Chris Kaiser, who's my partner in this, she asked me to pair up with a more experienced showrunner. I had worked for Chris on Tyrant, and he's just a really great man. He's a really generous, good, minchy person, and he's really smart, and he's really funny, and he loves the theater, and I really trust him. Mm -hmm. And so I took him out for dinner, and I said, this is my take, and are you interested and want (laughs) to do this with me and develop it with me? And luckily, he said yes, and then we went from there. So what was, if you had to articulate like what your take was
0: on Julia that helped you sell it? I mean, when you brought up the um, pilot that you wrote about the mature marriage, it feels like the marriage part of it was an important part of it for you?
2: Yes. So thematically, we always talked about it as like the invention of the modern marriage that we start. The season starts in a happy, loving, good marriage, but a like 1950s idea of a marriage. Mm -hmm. And you know, where Julia does things behind her husband's back and has to get him on board. And and then by the end of the season, it becomes a true partnership and a real month mm-hmm. marriage. So that was always part of the architecture. That was part of the pitch. That's what I was talking about with Kimberly. And then in like a sort of show Hollywood, like shorthand, I was like, it's The Crown meets Mrs. Maisel. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and then we talked about it's Julia's second act and the invention of food television and also all these cultural changes taking place in the United States in the 60s.
0: Well, it's so interesting like the, the the idea of the mature marriage because there's so much like there's there's really like nuance I mean I'm gay in my I'm, I'm just gay <laughs> um, but there's an ep- I don't know how I said it that so weirdly but <laughs> I have um, uh that episode with James Beard and like there's so much that goes on in that episode that it was fascinating to me Specifically, like, I think that's the same episode where Julia goes to Smith College to her reunion. So that's the previous episode. Oh, that's the previous episode. It's still like the in terms of like...
2: episode four. And then in episode five, yeah. they go to San Francisco. So, you know, we kind of divided the season into three acts in a way. Yeah. So the first three episodes are like getting started. So it, you know, it starts with her making that omelette and I've been reading. And episode three ends with her saying, Welcome to the French Chef. And it's the first real episode. Of the mm-hmm. show. So it's just like the beginning. And then the middle is sort of the growing pain. So then we do like a time cut. It's about her sort of coming to terms with becoming a public figure. And in episode four, she's not sure she likes it. And in episode five, she realizes that she does like it.
0: Mm-hmm. And then
2: in six, she really, like, like Julia as CEO, she sort of is more confident, is more is calling the shots. And then the last two episodes are about like what it means. Like what mm-hmm. the French chef means to different people and how Julia and Julia sort of confronted with that and has to sort of work through that. So we always thought of it as like these three separate chapters, which is why we hear the of a- first three all on, on, on the same on premiere night. Uh, mm. There was discussion to me about just doing the first two. And then we were like, well, the first three is the first chapter and then there's this jump. So why don't we, if we're going to do more than one, why don't we do the first three and then episode four the following Thursday, but we're, you know, two and a half months later and.
0: Got it. Well, it's almost like a superhero origin story in a way. It's like you're seeing her become like Batman or you're seeing her, but she's becoming this like icon that we all know and love as this almost like mythical figure. And you're seeing that process. Um, I'm curious, though, and I'm sure you must get asked this all the time uh, about the casting, because is it Sarah Lancashire? Is that how you say her name? Yeah. I mean, she is so splendiferous in that role and just... Brings so much subtlety and just like her, her eyes watering up, or just like her facial expression. So, how did you land on her? And was that a difficult
2: process? So, I mean, there was a list that was generated and just kind of everyone's eyes gravitated towards her. It is, it's a tricky part. It's a great mm-hmm. part, but you know, Meryl Streep played it in a movie. There's so much footage of her. She's six foot two. <laughs> There's all right, this thing. right that make it kind of complicated and she has the funny voice but you know unlike in the movie it's not split with another story it's sort of all julia all the time right. and we had to just sort of navigate that and figure that out and everyone felt sarah is, and we were all this big happy valley and last tango and halifax fans and this is like mm-hmm. me and chris but also the people at Lionsgate, the people at three Arts, the people at hbo max linda lowey the head of casting there like everyone sort of felt like she's one of the greats. She has authority. She has warmth. She has intelligence. She has these giant eyes, as you mentioned, and, and, yeah. and express kind of multiple conflicting thoughts simultaneously. And then when we went online, like she's done musicals on the West End and she... Oh, I didn't
0: know that. Okay. Yeah.
2: And she has like comedy chops. And we were like... And she has a and she has a flair for the theatrical. And Julia is theatrical. Like Julia's letters to Avis or uh, Julia mm-hmm. and Paula, they were just very witty and they loved language. So as a playwright, it was really fun for all of us in the writers room to kind of lean into that. So we need our whole cast. They're almost all theater actors, or they all. Oh yeah,
0: like David Hyde Pierce, David and, and, Baby and yeah, amazing,
2: have amazing theater credits, and uh, so they could sort of like luxuriate in the language of the Childs and the wit of that time. And so uh, anyway, so we just, and then we sent her the script. And, and according to Sarah, she didn't even know it was about Julia Child until she was like <laughs> 10 pages in. It was called Julia. And she didn't grow up with Julia Child. She only knows Julia from the movie. Uh, oh, from,
0: okay. She from, where's she's she from a England.
2: She's from the UK. Okay, And uh, she's not very well known there. And just thank goodness she responded to the material and she said, yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, what's so, what's in terms of the writing? I mean, I was going to ask you about this because I mean, when I was in writing school, we were always talking about like, what are the stakes? Like, what are the stakes of the story? Like, why should we care? And I feel like very early on in the story, the stakes are established. Like, I th- and it's somehow I feel like it's connected. To her not having children or there's something that that's seen i think that's in the first episode yeah, where, yeah, she, where she yeah. finds out she's going through menopause and i'm just curious in terms of constructing this how you thought about me, in, making the audience get invested in the story and creating it as a, as a stakes full story if that makes sense
2: <laughs> yeah no no so w- what was interesting about it is on the one hand it's a low-stakes story and we right. wanted it and it's a human Not low stakes, but it's human-scale stakes. And in this sort of era of like binge television where these like wild cliffhangers at the end of each episode that are always sort of exciting, but sometimes not, I don't know, believable (laughs) necessarily. Yeah. You know, we we really love the kind of the intimacy of the story and we wanted it to be an intimate story. At the same time, we wanted it to drive. And something that I feel now that i've worked in television for 10 years is like a great way to drive a television series is to give your protagonist a secret so we gave julia the secret that it was her idea not wgbh and that she has to convince and then she and then paul doesn't think it's a good idea Mm -hmm. and you know when we did the research you know she did Go on, I've been reading and at the last minute bring a hot plate, you know, because she Mm -hmm. on a whim and they did get 27 letters. And she did write a long letter to GBH proposing the idea of a show. What we made up is that Paul didn't know that she did it behind Paul's back. Got it. That said, we know that Paul was upset when he was asked to retire. He didn't do it. Um, It wasn't his notion. It was something that came from... The government. We know that Paul was a little bit of a snob about television and that the Childs didn't own a television until the French chef went on the air. So it felt truthful in the research, even though there's nothing in the research that says Julia did it behind Paul's back. When we sort of like read between the lines and connected the dots, it felt really true to the story. Yeah, and it makes
0: the audience feel part of it too. Like we're in on the secret with her, and we're like watching her pull, you know, machinate, and 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 that's really fun. It's
2: not this sort of like it's not a doll's house. She's not in a in a in a bad (laughs) marriage where she has a secret from her husband. She loves her husband, and the secret is killing her inside, and she doesn't want to have a secret. So that felt like that would be enough actually to drive the season. Mm -hmm. So that was sort of something that that we thought of. Early on, that would be, that felt, again, we always said we were doing like the Amadeus version of Julia Child. So, Peter Schaffer, when he wrote the great play Amadeus, said, I did a lot of research and even though the research doesn't say this is the story, I stand by it. Mm -hmm. It maybe isn't what happened, but maybe it is what happened. It definitely is what could have happened. And just because the history wasn't documented that way doesn't mean it didn't happen that way. So, so when you were
0: in the writer's room working on this, were you, was there somebody there like holding like her biography, like, ah, uh,
2: ah, uh, ah, uh, like, no, did I you mean, guys just have, throw well, it out the window? <laughs> well, I mean, we had a researcher, which was invaluable, and we had a really wonderful group of writers and everyone read, I mean, there's a lot out there about Julia, you know? there's numerous biographies, there's all, there's, you know, all of her talk show appearances, there's all the Fred Chef episodes, there's all the magazine articles she did. So there's a lot you can find. And Julia also contradicted herself a lot. So you, there's like, mm-hmm. she says one thing in one magazine, but then she says the total opposite thing in another magazine. And the contradictions are part of what makes her so interesting. So again, like in terms of the reading between the lines, people have written a little bit about the child's homophobia and that was part of who they were. Interesting. I, I, okay. But at the same it. time, Julia's dearest friend was James Beard. Right. Yeah. And that was really interesting to us. And San Francisco was the first city outside of Boston to start airing The French Chef. And the research also showed us that almost as soon as The French Chef started airing in San Francisco, drag artists were doing Julia Child. In in uh, underground like drag bars.
0: You know my favorite scene in the whole show is is the one, uh, and it's such a throw. It's just like a tiny little moment. I'm sure maybe you know what I'm going to say, but it's where the drag Julia Child goes home and tells his mother that uh, he met Julia, and they kind of, and she can't believe it. And it's just like such a sweet little moment because it's not part of the larger oh, that, story yeah, necessarily. Yeah, and, and that's so yeah. you know
2: we we fought for that moment because it's like one of the only <laughs> times where we break POV and go with yeah. Like a, yeah. And then in the next scene, you know, she calls him a queen and he calls them fairies. And again, it's the contradiction. So that was, so again, what, in the research, we knew Julia Drag performers existed. We knew about James Beard, but we also knew about her conflicting thoughts about gayness. And we thought, well, what if James, so we don't, the one thing we don't have proof of is that James Beard took her to one of those clubs. Right. But again, All the research added up that it could have happened. What about the Smith College
0: moment where um, her old friend is sort of saying there was a thunderstorm and they like were.
2: Yeah, again, that was something like there have been different things written about, about the child, about both of them in terms of sexuality that you can find. Uh-huh. You know, I mean, not to be totally reductive, but it is Smith College, <laughs> she <laughs> was, and she was on the yes. basketball team. And, you know, and and that, yeah. was a virgin until she met Paul. You know, she lost her virginity in her mid thirties. Um, so she was and sort of came to. Uh, in terms, it's not like she had a rich. Like history of boyfriends and dating life in her twenties and it, well,
0: it, I think part of the reason I awkwardly run up my sexuality is and because I did I wanted to bring that up because I don't know if I was reading into the show when I was watching it, but there was a combination of like that Smith College moment and then the like James yeah. beard thing and where I was sort of maybe intimating that maybe there's an implication that Julia and Paul could have both been gay and that they found each other and, and were sort of, they still loved each other or that they, but then they also have a lot of sex with each other. And they have so a lot I'm of sex crazy. with
2: each other. And <laughs> yeah. they, like, they literally like they have, they sent Valentine's Day cards of the two of them in the bath naked. I've That's- seen it.
0: Yeah. I've seen that on someone's refrigerator. <laughs> it is
2: one of the great love stories. And that is yeah. part of what's so fascinating about them again, like all of those contradictions. Like, I mean, if you look at photos of Paul He looks exactly like David Hyde Pierce and the kind of Mm -hmm. colorful clothing that Paul wears in the show is exactly like those are that's all taken from photos. That's really very much the true style of Paul. So it's all we don't want to comment on it too much. We just want to show it all. And, and I think it's
0: reductive to be like, are they gay? Are they not gay? Right. It's like that's, that's o- right. overly simple. It's like no, it's they're yeah. they're adults with complexity. The other theme that I really picked up on on the show, and I'm curious to hear you talk about it, is the idea, and I I really relate to this because I gave up a career or aspiring career as a playwright to become a food writer, and in the show that that's a real conflict in the show for the producer for Russ and for Judith Jones. This idea that like food isn't as serious as. Um, literature as theater and with your background as a playwright i'm curious did that theme emerge you think from yourself or was that something that was intrinsic to the story
2: no i think that was something that was more intrinsic to the story i've never thought of food as lesser like i worship Mm -hmm. food people like (laughs) like when we had our premiere we like we uh cherry bomb They hosted this dinner and I got to meet like Claudia Fleming and Deb Perelman. I was like flipping out. I'm totally starstruck by food. Deb Perelman is my (laughs) old friend because we we were food bloggers together back in New York. (laughs) Yeah. It was really exciting. So, but I think that really just comes out of the time. Like in the research, you know, Russ did study to be a director, and he was supposed to be the assistant director of Endgame at the Cherry Lane, and he and he took the job at GBH instead. And he loved British documentaries and so from all of that, we sort of created this guy who doesn't want to be doing something that he thinks is is frivolous or for women or for, you know, a certain type of woman. And then, of course, Russ Moresh is really like the father of DIY programming. Like after The French hmm. Chef, he did this old house and Victory Garden. And wow, he's like the Ryan Murphy of, uh, <laughs> of <you> know, <laughs> right. health shows. I mean... And 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 again, hopefully we'll have time to tell that story and we'll get to, you know, the Frenchette aired for 11 seasons. So we'll get to show like that evolution of Russ. So we wanted to start him somewhere. We don't know if specifically he was trying to make, you know, civil rights documentaries. but it, Right. Okay. But that felt
0: true to what we had found. But it's also there with Judith Jones too, right? With Blanche not telling her that she should be more literate or literary than Yeah. And
2: and again be. that all just came from the research we did about Blanche. And also, you know, just that Judith literally like rescued the diary of Anne Frank from the reject pile and was like translating or was editing translations of Camus and Sartre and was John Updike's editor. And then yeah. Mastering the Art of French Cooking came her way, and she decided. And that was the only cookbook she was editing. What's fascinating about Judith Jones is she became like the definitive editor of cookbooks when we get into the seventies. You know, mana Joffrey and, and Lydia Bastianich and and James Beard eventually, and but mm-hmm. some like really uh, and uh, Marcella Hazan and all these sort of food yeah. icons and and not just french or european food like a, a global cuisine she was interested in and she brought all of that to Knopf. so again our our hope is that we get to tell this story for more than this one season and we'll get Oh you will and i mean it feels like such
0: a beloved show already so i mean maybe i'm biased cuz i just love it so much but um so i'm curious like for just to tell the audience that's listening about you a little bit i mean you mentioned that you were a foodie but like Did you grow up in a family with lots of cooking? Like, did your parents cook Julia Child recipes? I I, I did.
2: My uh, my mother is a wonderful cook, and when I was a kid, she wrote a cookbook. And uh, really, yeah, and we grew. And my mother had the Julia books and did cook from them. We didn't watch The French Chef. My parents weren't big TV watchers, so uh, so I knew Julia more from the books, and then. I knew about Julia because of Dan Aykroyd on Saturday Night Live. I used to be like I used to love staying up and watching David Letterman and she had a hilarious kind of flirtatious crazy. She did multiple David Letterman appearances that I loved. Really?
0: I didn't know that. I'm going to go on YouTube after this and look that up. The,
2: the episode like the the Crepe Suzette episode that sort of inspired like her with the by some of her like ear. <laughs> oh, There's one <laughs> where she makes where she's trying to make hamburgers with David Letterman and then the the hot plate doesn't work, so she decides to make steak tartare instead. <laughs> that's really <laughs> <It's> funny. Really <laughs> funny. So that's how I. But yes, I grew up with wonderful food. I grew up going to. You know, my parents loved going out to eat. They loved taking. Where out.
0: Where were you? Where'd you grow up? I grew up? up in Toronto. Oh, okay, nice.
2: So, so yeah, that yeah. was all. So good food. Cooking. Yeah, good food, and uh, and we go to New York once a year, and so I, I'm. Yes, I I grew up with. I'm picky. So I'm like, I'm a foodie who's also very picky. I, <laughs> so what are I you picky them, about? What don't you eat? I don't like eggs. So, like, everyone, uh, I'm making omelets. I'm making omelets. And I'm like, whoa, like, even when we made the pilot and they had to like <laughs> 20 omelets in a row. And I was like, oh, my.
1: yeah. <laughs> I love that the creator
0: of the Julia Child show hates eggs. That's really funny. <laughs> I've actually heard that before. I have a friend, Cece, who went to NYU, who Like it's like it's not it's not doesn't just not like them. She gets like nauseated if she smells eggs cooking, and I kind of get that. Like there is something kind of like snotty and gross about just eggs, and so I I I mean I I, I I respect that.
2: chocolate souffle and i like yeah uh, yeah. you know i eat things with eggs in them but like a hard-boiled egg is disgusting to me
0: wait so to pivot we're we're gonna go back to your life and biography but i want to pivot back to the show for a second because i forgot to ask you about the food and like the making of the food in the show and how that all happens and who does it
2: and it happened first of all sarah is an amazing cook and she did not want uh like a double so she did almost all of the cooking, like. In that first breakfast scene where she makes David an omelet, that's Sarah and cracking the eggs. Like, that's all Sarah. So Sarah wow. was incredible with the cooking. I mean, she just has an incredible work ethic. Like, the part is huge. <laughs> she has, <laughs> you know, and she's, especially in the early episodes, she's in almost every scene. And she was letter perfect. And she found this incredible voice that sort of honored Julia, but wasn't an imitation of Julia. And then she did all the cooking, all the chopping, everything. Really? Then we also have this incredible food stylist, Christine Toman, who, you know, so like, whatever, in the Queen of Sheba cake, you know, she would have to make like 15 Queen of Sheba cakes because once you sliced through the cake once in a take, then you needed a new cake for the next take. So we had like... Right. So it's... and, And she really wanted, even if there were sort of newer recipes that were more... I don't know, that were more foolproof or looked more beautiful. She really wanted to only cook authentic Julia recipes. So uh, I think the only recipe that in the end we didn't use the authentic Julia recipe is the is the chocolate souffle in episode eight. And we all loved and ate the Julia chocolate souffle, but it didn't stay risen long enough. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> so, I needed some souffle Viagra. Right. So you, if you did like a Japanese cheesecake souffle, they uh-huh. stay, they stay high. Interesting. Okay. So so that's the magic of television. It, so that was the magic of television. So that, but that's the only, and again, they tried, but they, every, like we would try shooting it and just within a minute, it would start to fall a little bit. And we just needed it to stay. I mean, again, they made like, Thirty of them, and then you know, so our, our craft service table would have like Lacroix water and like you know peanuts and chocolate souffle. <laughs> or, you know, <laughs> so there were people in heaven, were they... Suzette. I mean, it was it was amazing. So everyone got to eat all the you know roast duck à l'orange I and mean, get all mm. of the stuff in there. Our... So it was really fun. It was really fun. I it love that. Wonderful. That's... Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's, it feels like I, I interviewed one of the actors on um, the show Better Things, Pam Adlong's yeah, show, and. Pam... And on that show, she's always cooking. And I was like, Is that, you know, are, you guys, are you guys really eating? Like, yeah, it's like, it's like we're in somebody's kitchen. But with the Julia show, I mean, when she's like sauteing garlic and stuff, I mean, you guys, are you guys really smelling all that on the set? Like, yeah. is it really I mean, and then perfuming there the like air? They
2: were both like, Sarah talks about like in the pilot when she goes to the oyster house. And I mean, because we did so many takes, I forget what she says, but I think they each ate like 20 oysters. Like, <laughs> they each ate oh like, 10 lobster tails. Like, it was crazy. David uh, talks about like in the in the Joyce Chen Chinese restaurant that he, I think he ate something like forty dumplings. Like, <laughs> there's one scene that actually didn't even make it into the show where she makes um a pear clef, and tea. She references it, but we don't. There was a scene where you saw it, and she kind of feeds him. And we, sh- mm-hmm. I-, I think he ate the entire pair clafouti, <laughs> and then it's not even in the show. <laughs>
0: oh, that's so funny! I'm work. I'm working with a friend who's a Broadway actor on a Broadway cookbook that's coming out in the fall, and they're all puns on Broadway shows. But our Beauty and the Beast is clafouti and the Beast, and it has Ju- Julia's recipe in it. So uh- uh- I've made that many <laughs> times. Yeah. Um. So in terms of your, you say you say your mom wrote a cookbook, but when you say that, like, did she, was it a book that for the family or did she publish? No, no, a it was a
2: published cookbook in Canada called The Good Table. Wow. Yeah. So yeah, yeah so did she's you, like a real. She's an amazing cook.
0: Is she still around?
2: She's still around. Yeah.
0: So did, is she loving the show?
2: She is loving the show. Yeah. It's wow. Yeah, it's really, it's very nice. I'm. I'm. <laughs> I, both my parents are around, so I I feel very lucky, and I'm just that they got to. See me get to this moment is really nice. And did you shoot the show in Boston? Is that we We shot the show in Boston? Even when we go to New York or San Francisco, we shot it all in Boston.
0: Yeah, because I noticed because my my partner's shooting a movie there right now, and and we were walking through Boston Common, and then when I watched the show, I was like, oh, that really is Boston Common. It's not a joke. (laughs) That
2: was awesome. In the pilot, you see us actually on Mass Ave in Cambridge, Mm -hmm. and then we shot in uh, Boston Common a couple times. So. And then, you know, the San Francisco, like we, whatever we use the Fairmont Hotel, to right. the Fairmont Hotel in San Francisco and, and the Waldorf, you know, we use their, their ballroom to be the Waldorf ballroom. And-
0: so to go back to the question of, um, the like truth versus like taking liberties, like is when, when you're dealing with like a public figure, like a Julia Child who has like a, I think like a foundation or like, mm-hmm. an, you know, like a, an estate Like, do you have to run things past them when you're doing a show like this? So they were
2: were incredibly uh, supportive and helpful and generous with us. They are, um, they're consultants on the show, the Julia Child Foundation. And they read all the scripts as they were coming in. And they basically felt it was all true to the spirit of Julia. Mm -hmm. So, you know, do we know if Julia had a run-in with Betty Friedan? No. Do we know if Mm -hmm. Julia's saying it had to be you with... With Coco Van, no. Right. (laughs) But they felt like everything we were doing felt true to the character and true to the biography. And we had their support. I think they knew that our heart was in the right place and that we had done all our research and then crafted these stories based on the research. And I know that's not always the case with the states. So we were we were very lucky to have them on our side. And then we also had the Smithsonian as a consultant and they, you know, we recreated the kitchen exactly. I noticed
0: that. Yeah. Cause I've gone to the Smithsonian and seen that kitchen with the pegboard and and all that stuff.
2: Designed to accommodate her height. And so, you know, we had a lot of experts on hand when we needed them, but they mostly are they they mostly were really helpful and really supportive. There's nothing we did in the first season that they took issue with. There's nothing we had to mm-hmm. change or adjust. They just basically supported it. Or, but, or they'd give us like a little detail about, I don't know, but like how she would squeeze her origins
0: <laughs> or something. <laughs> right. Well, I think you captured something about her that I've read about, but that I hadn't seen in, in depictions of of her or watching her show which is her irreverence and that she's kind of like you know she curses she yeah. uh and she was horny basically <laughs> i mean i mean there's these sides of her that you're seeing on this show that the pu- people who are aware of her don't wouldn't necessarily know about yeah so and I love that's that about that's it.
2: in the books like that's all in the research yeah and then we we also went to gbh and interviewed people that worked on the show and so we you know sometimes we did i mean. I interviewed the GBH people after I had written the pilot and there were a few uh-huh. adjustments I made, but just a few. And then it was great information moving forward. Cause again, in the pilot, she's not really at GBH yet. So got it. And then in terms of like the other
0: characters, like Avis and Paul, um, but also like Alice at the network and Russ, like did you feel you had to really research their real biographies to service
2: their characters? I mean, it, it was like, so in terms of Avis and Paul, the research that exists is really connected to Julia it's hard to find mm-hmm. too much about Avis that's not about Julia it's hard to find too much about Paul that's not about Julia there is stuff about Paul and Paul's identical twin brother wrote a book and we mm. we've um we, we did as much we did a bunch of research but we also didn't want to do so much research on the supporting characters that we wouldn't be able to craft a story there's a there's a lot out there about Judith and we read Judith Judith wrote an autobiography and, mm-hmm. and that and um, and there's just you know, and when she passed away, there's some amazing obituaries of her that we read and used to draw from. Alice is the only character that's a composite character. So she's based mm-hmm. on a few different people, but she's a made up character. So we did research in terms of people of color in public television, both at mm-hmm. GBH and at WNET. And we did a little bit of research at, at you know, based on Ruth Lockwood, who was actually the woman who booked her. and I had been reading and was the associate producer. Got it. I've been reading of uh, the French chef, but but Ruth was um, Julia's roommate at Smith, and w- we liked the idea of broadening the scope of the show and having a younger character on the show. And it again, it felt all true to the research. Nothing we did didn't exist. Mm-hmm. So, but Alice is the only. Care- I guess Hunter is also a composite character. He wasn't in the pilot, but he uh, he's based on. Hartford Gunn, who was the head of GBH at the time, but also mm-hmm. some other public television executives that we did research on.
0: Well, what's interesting, I mean, in terms of like how you tell the story, I, I mean, this is obvious because I think this this will be obvious to anyone watching, but it's like the the thematics of each episode, like like the one that I just watched, the most recent that's up on the. On HBO is the foie gras episode and you know and it's it wasn't like it's not like it clobbers you over the head but it's like that episode really seemed to be about being a woman in in that time period and what it meant um for different women in, in different positions because you have Betty Friedan confronting Julia at the um gala but you also have Judith Jones getting yelled at by Blanche Knopf about not being ambitious enough and then you also have Alice going to the diner on her date and, and saying she doesn't want to have children. So, I mean, how, when you come up with these themes for these episodes, does it sort of happen organically or did that, was that something you laid out in advance?
2: A little bit of both. I mean, we always knew even when we, cause I did a ton of research and then I sat with Chris when we were sort of like crafting the pitch. And even when we were pitching it to the networks, we always knew there was going to be a San Francisco episode where Julia mm-hmm. gets on stage with a drag performer dressed as Julia. Like that was, we always knew she was going to go to her Smith College reunion mm-hmm. and meet someone who was in love with her when they were in college. We always knew she was going to go to this gala and meet Betty Friedan, who was going to, and, by the way, like we wanted Betty Friedan's argument to be a, a valid argument and a, yeah. and, a, and a real argument and a good argument. And what we were hoping, I mean, the the sort of episode seven in the writer's room, we talked a lot about like, hello, Dolly and into the woods. <laughs> and in Hello, uh, okay. Dolly, everyone goes to New York City and they're all sort of separated and they all run around and go on their various adventures. And then they all meet up at the end at the restroom. Uh-huh. And then in into the woods, everyone goes into the woods and then goes to the ball but everyone's expectations have been upended. So Julia goes to New York thinking it's going to be a magical, wonderful weekend. And
1: mm-hmm. it's really
2: the first time in the show where not only does Betty Friedan, you know, give her a talk down, but Blanche does at Lutes. And then Andre Soltler does also at Lutes. So it's just yeah. a challenging day for her. While Alice thinks like, oh, my mother is setting me up with someone. This is going to be a disaster. And it flips. It turns out to be something special. Got it. And Russ thinks he's gonna meet this documentary filmmaker, and she's gonna say you go, and she sort of surprises him. So everyone's expectation, and you know, and Avis is good. Avis and Paul come together, and mm-hmm. th- we really wanted to have everyone go thinking one thing would happen, and then the opposite thing would happen, and that's sort of how we built the the themes of that episode. That's really interesting. So it's almost like the
0: design. Or like the good like practices of storytelling are first and foremost in terms of like what, what what will be a good entertaining piece of television where we surprise the audience and take them places we didn't see where they're going and then sort of like like a puzzle then and sort of like fitting it into the themes and the characters and the, and then
2: also this is the you know this is the second last episode of the season and so we wanted Julia to really be in crisis as we go mm-hmm. into the finale and has something that she has to sort through and figure out you know, and sort of resolve in the next episode.
0: And so are you, are you in a writer's room right now for season two or is that...
2: We not... are in a writer's room okay. now for season two, although we haven't been officially given a season two order yet. But we've been working now for for almost two months on the second season. So we're, you know, we're hoping. Well, I'm hoping too. I mean, in terms of like pacing, like it feels
0: like the story, you know, it, it takes its time in places in ways that make it more pleasurable because it's sort of like you get to, you know, really sit in the story. But I imagine when you're doing a show like this, you're probably thinking to yourself, well, how quickly do I want to get through this? It's really
2: interesting. On? We, when when we pitched the show, we thought the first season would end with her being nominated for the first educational television Emmy, which was So we thought the first season was gonna cover three years, just sort of like the crown that you cover. Because again, in terms of the biography, in terms of the events, there just aren't that many events. Mm -hmm. So we thought we were gonna cover a bigger period of time. When we got into the writer's room, we realized the like how they invented food television and all those beats were really fun and really Mm -hmm. interesting. And we slowed the story down. So unlike you know Julie and Julia, which covers 15 years of her life in one hour. We cover one year of her life in Mm -hmm. eight hours. So we got to tell intimate stories and we got to show the private Julia and see what she's like when she's by herself or see what she's like alone, you know, with her husband behind closed doors or or at the doctor's office. So we got to sort of explore the interior moments of Julia. And I think hopefully, and Sarah's so brilliant and really flesh her out as opposed to like a more traditional biopic where you just hit the great Mm -hmm. hit events. We don't, we didn't have to do that. It's so funny because in drama school at NYU, you're always taught to like start as close to the end as possible and get through Mm -hmm. and what I learned on Mrs. Mazel, and now through Julia, is that's just not true at of an MFA. At, at yeah. least in a comedy, <laughs> but there is something to be said for slowing a story down and getting them fully yes. invested in characters and seeing them grow over time and evolve over time as opposed to skipping important beats on the journey. So we, we, yes, we slowed this, you know, originally again, I thought the pilot was going to take us through. Making the pilot, mm-hmm. and then when I started writing it, I realized there was no way to do that and, and have you actually learn anything about the characters. So we split it into two episodes. So mm-hmm. the pilot of Julia was actually only the first half of the outline I wrote for the pilot, and then the second episode was oh, interesting, half of the outline. There's something very meta
0: about the making of a show, about Julia making a show, too, because it's sort of like... Oh, and
2: it's a first season about a first season. Yeah, you guys are um, doing
0: all the things that she did in a way. And I
2: guess, you know, again, because of COVID and because of all these other hiccups that we had, I spent like two and a half years working on the pilot. And then all of a sudden, we got a sort of early pickup, and then we had like 10 weeks to write seven more episodes. Oh, my
0: God. And just like what Julia
2: goes through, like, it's one thing to make a pilot, and then Russ is like, okay, I need 26 episodes, you know, so... It, it really was, there was something very meta about
0: it. And then in terms of the production of the, these episodes, I mean, even just the one I just watched, the Gala, I mean, it's like, there's so much that goes into these. I mean, they're beautiful. So was that part of the process for you in terms of like being a writer now? I mean, I guess Mrs. Maisel maybe set you up to like learn all about that kind of production well, stuff. Well, it's interesting, you Note know, yeah. the pilot
2: actually... Is really a lot of two character scenes with people eating. (laughs) Yeah, right. And Charles McDougall, who directed the pilot, he really gave the show its scale. So I remember it was like our second day of shooting, and it was outside Savinor's, where she bumps into her friend with the baby carriage. And I wrote, "It's a two character scene. It's one page." I thought they would we would shoot it in front of the window. We'd see the butcher. It would be you know uh, like a close shot. And I got to the street. And the street was closed and there were police there and there were 50 period cars and a hundred extras. Yeah. And I was like, what is going on?
0: But <laughs> it, so it, it
2: gave the show size and scope and made it feel bigger. And I'm so grateful to him for that. And he did that everywhere. Like on I've been reading, it never occurred to me that there were that many people on the crew on the other side and that mm-hmm. and, and or the bullpen at GBH when she walks down the hall and sees it all. And and uh, probably it's bigger than the actual GBH was at the time. <laughs> but That's I think funny. it gave the the show a kind of scale and a kind of size. And then the other directors and then that became, you know, that became the aesthetic of the show and all the other directors that came on afterwards. They all brought their own artistry and their own voice to it. But they had to honor the template that Charles had created. And I'm really
0: grateful. Oh, yeah. The period details, even like in terms of like that, that gala event, where right? Was that Rich Little? Was that supposed to be Rich Little doing Ovan-meter. JFK?
2: It was Von meter. Yeah. But, but, but also again, and then doing it all in COVID. So like all of, oh, like, wow. especially the pilot before the vaccines, it was like, it was like the Truman Show or something because they're in yeah. these beautiful, colorful period clothes and these beautiful color period sets. And we're wearing masks and shields and gloves. And there's like <laughs> tape and lines of like zones where you, I mean, it was sort of, so It is it is amazing when I think we made the whole show during COVID and we wow. have those scenes and those extras and you don't feel it at all. I don't think you don't feel that. No, yeah. I would never have known that.
0: So as a final question for this part of the podcast, was there anything that you learned like making this show in terms of food or did it affect you in terms of how you approach cooking and eating
2: at home or eating out or? Well, I'm just trying to be you know, I, I told you I was picky, so I'm trying to be a little less picky. So, like last night, we went mm. out with friends to like the Mama Fuku Noodle Bar in the Time Warner Center, and the special was sweetbreads, and they had uh. just watched the episode. Yeah, like we have to get them, and I'm like, I've never had sweetbreads. What? Really? You never even that? had them when
0: they did it on. The and episode? they were
2: like, Daniel, you had, and I even <laughs> said that Christine actually made sweetbreads for some people in the cast because they wanted to taste them because they'd never had them, and even though you never see them cooked on the show, she made them for them, and. I was like a little squeamish. And so I I had sweetbreads last night. So I (laughs) and they were delicious. There you go. And And then like for our anniversary, we went to a fancy restaurant and there's some stuff that I'm a little like, you know, I was a little nervous to eat, but it was a prefix menu. And I was about to say, can you adjust this for me? And can you adjust this for me? And my wife was like, Daniel, you have a Julia Child (laughs) show coming out in two months. Just like Go for it. So I'm trying to be more
0: adventurous. I love that. That's hilarious. I mean, well, that's perfect. It sounds like you're actually, this is like her her ghost is like smiling down on you right now. Thank
2: you. That's nice.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for doing uh, the first part of my interview. We're going to take a quick like two second pause and then I'll just start asking you some fun questions. So thanks again. Thank you. All right, well, thanks for listening to this very special Julia Child episode of the Amateur Gourmet Podcast. I forgot to mention that I have a brand new episode of my YouTube show up this week. Uh, This week, I show you how to make brunch. I make scrambled eggs with Gruyere and caramelized onions, which I think Julia Child would approve of. I also make Smitten Kitchen's blueberry muffins and crispy bacon that I bake in the oven. If you want to watch that, just go onto YouTube and search the Amateur Gourmet Show and be sure to like and subscribe. All right, well, if you want to hear my bonus episode, With Daniel Goldfarb, be sure to subscribe to my Substack, which is amateurgourmet.substack.com, and you'll get to hear the 10 bonus questions tomorrow. All right, well, I'll see you back here next week. To quote Julia, bon appetit!